Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. Cryptozoology, the perfect pastime for those with a penchant for the peculiar. We met with Lyle Blackburn, whose work spans across all media, writing, music, film, radio, and television. Lyle has a lifelong fascination with cryptid creatures and spooky legends, which inspired his latest book, Sinister Swamps, Monsters and Mysteries from the Mire. This is an excerpt from his book. The ominous reputation of the swamp is not confined to the realms of fiction, however. Swamps are also places where real-life mysteries and spooky legends flourish. Rumors of monsters, ghosts, witches, and even buried treasure are often rooted in their bubbling backwaters. Though some are inevitably entangled within local lore, many transcend rumors through eyewitness reports, tangible evidence, and occasionally a photo. Over the years, more than a few swampland visitors claim to have encountered strange beasts or animals unknown to the outside world. These creatures, which typically fall into the category of cryptozoology, the study of unproven animals, run the gamut from ape-like humanoids to shadowy felines to devilish dogs to slithering aquatic forms and winged wonders that defy rational explanation. Others have reported experiences with ghosts, spook lights, and other haunted phenomena. Perhaps this is not surprising given that swamps are often associated with cases of missing persons, tragic deaths, and hidden bodies. And buried treasure? This too seems curiously plausible since swamps are the ideal place to hide that which needs to be hidden. Lyle is also a professional narrator of several documentary films. His band Ghoultown, which he describes as a cross between Johnny Cash and Rob Zombie, has achieved worldwide success, not only in live venues, but in movies and video games as well. Be it music or monsters, Lyle remains busy. To get to the basics, we started out by asking him what exactly is cryptozoology. Well, cryptozoology is defined as the study of unknown or unproven animals. And this is not a accredited sort of science. Um, you know, you can't go get a degree in cryptozoology like you could biology or zoology or something. Um, but it's something that um, many people have pursued, you know, academically and in field research. And these type of creatures that we pursue would be called cryptids. And most would know that as Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, Yeti, Chupacabra, things like that, where people in modern times are reporting uh, sightings of these creatures, which, you know, are currently unproven and questioned as to their existence. Let's talk about your fascination. I understand that your first visit to the Florida Everglades was when you were 10 years old. Is that what really started you on this curiosity for cryptids? Well, I, I was already interested in this prior to that because ever since I was young, I loved horror movies and monsters and things like that. And when I was early in grade school, I got a 
like a book that was a strange but true tales. And that talked about Bigfoot and Yeti and Loch Ness Monster. And that was the first time I'd heard of those creatures. And I was thinking, wow, you know, could there be things like that in the real world, like real monsters, basically? And then later uh, I saw a film called The Legend of Boggy Creek, uh, which dramatized sightings of a Sasquatch-like creature in southern Arkansas, which was only about three hours from where I lived in Texas. So I was already kind of fascinated with that stuff. And then sort of in that same realm of monsters and and things like that, of course, I, you know, was drawn towards swamps. And anytime I saw something, you know, on TV in a movie, whether it was a swamp or a Scooby-Doo episode, they always, you know, <laughs> had the setting in a swamp, you know. I was like, man, that's spooky and cool. And I love dinosaurs, too. So, you know, it was very, it looked very prehistoric. So, even though there are swamps in Texas, the place where I lived was very flat and nondescript. So when I was 10, we went to Florida on a, on a big vacation with my grandparents and my parents. And that's when we went to the Everglades and we went to some other parks that had swampy areas and cypress trees. And I was like, wow, there, you know, this is like the real deal. And there's alligators here. And, you know, for a kid, that was big stuff. And that, that's when I kind of, really fell in love with the whole swampy environment and later in life, you know, obviously have a fascination and want to explore those areas. After reading your book, because you have a book, Sinister Swamps, Monsters and Mysteries from the Mire, I see that there are many places there that you visited that was an inspiration for your writing. You did quite a bit in Florida in particular. So tell me the places that you visited in Florida. Well, uh, I, you know, I haven't been back to the Everglades as an adult, and in the process of doing this book, which spans many, many states and, and all over, you know, I, I visited probably half or two-thirds of the locations. In particular, in Florida, I visited some of the Panhandle areas, uh, some of the areas I talk about, uh, Tate's Hill State Forest, um, and then I've been down to the Acala National Forest, which is more in central Florida, in terms of the study of skunk apes, which is it encompasses a lot of my book, and also sightings, you know, have been reported throughout the Everglades. I've been to Okefenokee Swamp, which is right there, kind of almost to the border of Florida. When I write these books, you know, obviously it. I'm telling tales. Some of these are told by other people or some of these are legends and lore, but it's always great to have to go to the place or as many as I can and describe them in person, sort of bring the reader along with me, you know, in, in my perception of what this place looks like. It, it sets the setting for all these tales that we're telling. In the Everglades section that you write um, in your Sinister Swamps, you state the Everglades, of course, aside from its plant and wildlife, it's also a sinister place that has a history of, quote, devouring that which comes its way. There's a lot of mysteries in there. Can you explain some of them? Yeah, certainly. I, I think, you know, I kind of use that analogy because in particular in the Everglades, there were, you know, stories of people who had inexplicably disappeared. There were stories of lost cities and, and just things, you know, hiding or disappearing back into the woods and the, you know, the swamps from 
you know, skunk ape type things, giant snakes, rumors of alligator people. You know, it was a place to me that was so huge and vast that it could just hide and conceal the truth and devour anything that was out there that, you know, may become lost or, you know, people who didn't really realize how dangerous it was. They would just disappear and nobody would ever see them again. The other place you talk about is Big Cypress. You know, that's where the skunk ape is, right? Like Big Cypress and as well as the Green Swamp. Right. Uh, the Big Cypress Preserve, which is a bit on the west side of the Everglades, that place in particular has a long history of skunk ape activity, you know, dating back to like 1957 when a group of hunters were in there and, you know, they were kind of awakened at night by some heavy footsteps and one of them got up and took a look and sort of in the moonlight there among the cypress trees they saw he, he saw what he perceived to be a very large human and they you know figured well perhaps it's a Seminole Indian or something and then you know upon looking at it longer realized this thing looked to be covered in hair it was probably you know seven or eight feet tall just much larger than a human and those were kind of some of the early tales of, of skunk apes. And then in the same place in the early 70s, there was a very similar thing where an archaeological group went out there and had sightings of some sort of upright ape-like creature. And so the Big Cypress is, is a, it really is, is one of the central points um, where the history of the skunk ape dates back. What is the most fascinating discovery in Florida that you found? One of the things that I thought was most fascinating that the flight, infamous Flight 19, which was the squadron of able, uh, naval aircraft that was lost back in the 40s, could have crashed into the Everglades. And, you know, there's all sorts of theories about this, you know, mostly associated with the Bermuda Triangle, even associated with UFO activity. But some researchers found enough circ circumstantial evidence to suggest that perhaps this lost squadron turned inland and got over the Everglades. And if they did and they ran out of fuel and they crashed in there, that this whole... <laughs> This whole squadron could just submerge out there and these planes be lost and, and again, devoured, never to be seen again. So I, I thought that just sort of brings it into perspective. This place is just that big and that vast that it could just swallow up some planes and we would just simply never be able to solve that mystery unless somebody just happened to stumble across the wreckage. What's on tap for you? What's what's next? Well, I've got a I've got another book I wrote sort of during the lockdown. You know, I do a lot of appearances around the country and I've even done a skunk ape conference in Florida once. So there's always fun stuff to do, you know, and autograph books and do presentations, but obviously we've been shut down. So I spent the time putting together another book that's in the Boggy Creek series that I do. And that's going to come out in October. I completed the narration for a new documentary uh, for small town monsters called Mothman Legacy. And I've narrated many, many of their documentaries over over the years. And uh, so that comes out as well in October. When you do come to Florida to do one of your Bigfoot conferences or whatever, I would love to bring that to my listeners. So, and hopefully we can join you there. That would be great. Love to meet you in person. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there was talk of doing a, a, 
another sort of a Bigfoot conference type thing in Florida. And, you know, for those that don't know, I mean, Florida is one of the hot spots for Bigfoot sightings. And of course, the sort of localized term there is skunk ape. But, you know, Florida is way up there in the number of sightings per year. So it's a great sort of hub of Bigfoot activity and Bigfoot interest. So it'd be really great if they get a Florida Bigfoot conference or something going, because I would definitely be out at that, whether I was speaking or just coming to it. Thank you, Lyle. Thank you for your time and good luck with your future projects. And we hope to see you soon at a Bigfoot event. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was Lyle Blackburn talking about cryptid creatures and sinister swamps. To learn more about Lyle and his latest work, or to check out his band Ghoultown, go to lyleblackburn.com. There's also a link on our website at soflowweird.com. Next up, our favorite legend tripper returns, Rob Robinson, to talk about the elusive skunk ape, Florida's version of Bigfoot. We asked Rob how this eight-foot-tall, hairy, bipedal humanoid creature got its name. The Florida skunk ape, or the animal that's seen down here, you know, it got its name because of the smell. Mm -hmm. You know, back in 1971, when O.H. Osborne was being interviewed by a newspaper after him and two other individuals in Big Cypress saw the animal, and he gave off how the animal gave off a really rotten egg type smell, and and said he stated to the newspaper, it's called a skunk ape, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of where I. As far as my research goes, that's the first time it was the term skunking. Have you? Used. I mean, when you've been out there, have you smelled anything? Yes, we've had a couple of incidents where we have smelled something, but didn't see what we thought. You know, we right, were expecting right. to find a dead carcass of some animal out there, and we never did find it. You know, you get a smell for a couple, you know, minutes, and all of a sudden the smell's gone, like something was there, and then it wasn't. And it wasn't. Um, I've talked to people who have seen it and didn't smell anything. I've talked to people who smelled stuff, didn't see anything, and I've talked to people who've seen it and smelled. Oh wow! And and Bigfoot or skunk ape or Sasquatch, it's got many different names. It is seen just about everywhere, right? Uh, it is seen everywhere in the United States with the exception of Hawaii. It's the only state that does not have any recorded, you know, uh, large hairy creature. Because the animal was actually, back in the old days, were called the wild man. Yeah. Before it was ever called Bigfoot or the skunk ape. I mean, the Native Americans have stories of these that go way past, you know, further back before, you know, the uh, settlers, European settlers came to the United States. Or America, as the expression goes. I mean, all the way up in Canada, they have, you know, tales of these animals. I mean, there's been some even seen down in Mexico. Oh, you know, wow. Just to tell you that. Holy and cow. So, I mean, and, you know, somebody said, well, you know, are they? Are you sure you're not seeing bear? I mean, I've talked to people that have been in the woods all their life, and they know what a bear looks like. And no, they, and it doesn't look like, I mean, from what no. I see, it does not look like a bear at all. At all. So who so who was Wild Man? We had we have a story from here about yes. Wild Man, do we not? Um, yeah, um, from from Florida. Uh, back in 1976, there was a uh, a Taiwan Taiwanese sailor that had somehow jumped ship over in Tampa and made it out to the Green Swamp, and was living out there and uh, eating armadillos and living inside a big cypress tree. And he was seen at various times. Actually, he was seen coming into uh, you know people's property and he was stealing like pies on, on a ledge, yeah. believe it or not. Yeah. Know. They finally got a hold of him. You know, They went out looking for him. But uh, I talked to a deputy who was out there. And because if you read the newspapers, they said they put a, got a posse together, went out there and found him. 
Well, he said, we didn't actually find him. He kind of found us. We were out there looking for him, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he came running out of the woods. And, uh, you know, we tackled, took six of us to tackle him, and they were really surprised how strong he was for such a skinny little man. They finally got him subdued and, uh, you know, got him over and took him over to the Lakeland jail. And they got an interpreter to talk to him, and they he asked him what it was that you saw, or what it was that made you come running out. And, and the interpreter said, I, I, I don't know what he's talking. I mean, I don't know the word. What, he mean, said, the language, you, know, you mean? Yeah, I mean, and he said, uh, you know, I said, was it a bear? Was it a panther? Was it another person? And all? He said, no, it was something else. And I'm wondering if he didn't have a run-in with a, with a skunk, skunk ape. ape. It yeah. finally, you know, scared him to coming out. So unfortunately, they, these, this gentleman, the sailor, ended up hanging himself later oh. on because he was scared of being deported back to Taiwan. And it's an unfortunate ending to that story. What kind of evidence is out there for skunk apes? Uh, well, we've had, of course, the, the main thing is, of course, the tracks. Mm -hmm. I would say the main evidence. And then the second would be the eyewitnesses, you know. And the reason I put the tracks, because tracks are something that you can show people. Whereas uh, witnesses, people will say witnesses aren't always reliable. Being a, being a military policeman and doing many interviews, I, I sometimes understand that. But I've interviewed people that have seen this thing who I wholeheartedly believe they're interviews. Because, you know, when people see this thing, it is a life-altering incident in their life. And the people that I've noticed that see this thing, which, again, I believe have seen it, can tell you everything they did that day. Um, they're very detailed? Very detailed. And in an incident, I had one um, over there by the uh, Swanee River. We were in a restaurant. You know, the, the manager knew what we were there for and told us that there was a couple that may have seen it. And I look over across the restaurant, and this couple are dressed in camouflage, and a lady is crying, really. And I was like, should I go over there or should yeah. I? You know, and I said, I'm going to have to go over there, you know. So I walk up, and I introduce myself, and I said, I understand that you may have seen a Bigfoot type creature and she started jumping up i told you i told you that's what i saw i yeah. told you i was screaming and yeah you know, i and you, you know and she's pointing at her husband just you know just, yeah you know screaming at him and he's just trying to look as calm as he can and he looks over yeah. his shoulder everybody look, you know right you know, she's creating a scene you know long story short it was her first time out hunting he took mm -hmm. her out there put her in a tree stand and then he went to a different one left her there she sat up there fell asleep woke up feeling that something was tugging on the ladder and she looked down and saw this large wow. hairy man type beast looking up at her Oh my and she God. looked at it she and she said scared. it must have been yeah. a couple seconds and then she finally started screaming for her husband and this thing just walked off i mean it walked off it didn't run off it walked off because i asked her that and she said she was surprised you know she remembers how how human it looked in its face whereas she she'd heard stories about bigfoot and, and pictured more of a gorilla type face and she was actually surprised how human the face looked and uh how you know muscular and stuff but it was a very yeah. lean yeah you know and like a very fit Bigfoot, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. had gone down, you know, combat cardio or doing that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But she said it wasn't big and bulky. It was very, you know, but it was extremely muscular. But mm -hmm. it was covered with a reddish hair. And she said it was definitely not a person in a suit. And it just walked off. She said the arm, she noticed that the arm did seem to dangle. Mm -hmm. And the husband eventually came running up, and he said it took him about an hour to get her to get off the tree stand. Oh, yeah, she was petrified. Uh, and, yeah. I mean, it's just 
and I hope I wholeheartedly believe that she saw something she couldn't explain. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you I don't, think Do you think people don't come forward because they're afraid they'll be called like crazy or whatever? Like, yeah, there's still a lot of people out there that kind of kept it to himself. Mm -hmm. I had one individual come in to see me at it at the coaxing of his son. His son knew about me and said, "You really? I want you to go in and talk yeah, to yeah. to Robert Robinson." And he came. He actually came to my work after mm -hmm. school. And he sat down, and it was uh, 2012, Thanksgiving morning. He was in a tree stand and he was with a big palmetto field in front of him, and he was sitting on and he was playing on his cell phone, and something came walking in front of him. And at first he thought it was a guy in a ghillie suit, but he looked at it and noticed how it was walking. It didn't have a very human-looking walk, and it stopped. And it was just like in the middle of the palmetto field, like sniffing. Well, he takes out his cell phone, and he starts filming it, because he, you know, he heard stories of the skunk ape, and he's like, I wonder if I have a skunk ape here. And he's filming it, and the thing's just sniffing. And then he said, turned around and looked right up at him. And he said a chill went right down his spine when he realized it wasn't a guy in a suit, that it was a, a real creature. Yeah. And then the thing just stared at each other for a second. And then he stopped filming because he didn't know if the thing was going to charge at him or not. Just as he put it, stopped filming, the thing took off running. He said, I was taken back how fast this thing was. Got on the phone, called his brother and his dad and his son, and they all came running up because they were all in different tree stands all out there. Mm -hmm. And he had told them, and his son, you know, laughed because his dad wouldn't come out of the tree stand. You know what he said? <laughs> yeah. But uh, he said, and it, the, the weird thing is, is when we got home, my dad went right to his room. This is his son telling me mm -hmm. about it. And he went right to his room and went, didn't want to talk to anybody or nothing. Like, it, it really messed with him seeing this thing. Yeah. They sound curious because the few times that you've told me people have mm -hmm. said so, they don't sound necessarily aggressive. They're just curious, and then they sort of run off. I know it scares yeah. you, obviously, something that that large, but there's really no act of aggression that's been reported, has there? Well, there, there, there is one story of supposedly one attacking, and it happened back in, uh, I believe it was 1821, where some hunters came down from Georgia into Florida in the Okefenokee Swamp with an Indian guide, a Creek Native American. And they ran into some tracks, and the uh, creek said, yeah, we have stories about this thing. It's like a, a, a wood cannibal, so we don't mess with it. I want to see what this is. Well, later that night, they heard something screaming at them and all that, and they said that was enough for them. They, you know, they took off and went back, told the, the, the rest of the settlers what they had seen. They went back down with nine more people to go find out what this thing was. Got down to the area, again, found some tracks, and that, that night, they heard screaming, and, and they could hear something circling their camp. Some of the settlers start shooting into the woods. Oh, no. Well, you know, this happened And this is why you don't bring guns. Yeah. <laughs> and then out of nowhere, this thing came running out of the woods toward them, killed five of them, <gasps> twisted their heads off. That's the way the story goes, twisted their heads off. They finally shot enough times where they, the animal finally went down dead. They measured it. They said it was 13 feet long, which I don't believe it was actually 13, but that's what they said. And... They were sitting there debating what to do that night. Then they started hearing more screaming going on. Oh, my God, there's more of these animals there. And they hogtailed it and headed right back, left their dead comrades there, along oh with the dead gosh. animal, went back up into Georgia. But again, this story, like I've you know, noticed where the animal is aggressive, the animal was shot at. Yeah. So any animal I know out there, you know, you shoot fighting at it. Fighting for its or, life. Uh, yeah, you're fighting for your life. I mean, Frank Buck, a big world famous uh, animal trapper back in the 30s and 40s, even said it, even the most timid animal can get a, you know, can turn deadly if you shoot at of it. Of course. Um, but most of the signs, like you said, are, are the things are curious. I have a theory, which I've, you know, that these animals, 
when they have their pods, their family units, mm-hmm. I use the word pod because it's the same thing for gorillas, that the animals will have a sentry or one out there, and it kind of keeps an eye out for humans coming into the area. Mm-hmm. And when humans do come in, they'll do the wood knock and alert the other animals or the pod that humans are heading our direction. We need to hogtail it out of here, right. which I think is another reason we hear the wood knocks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these animals have been seen going through trash cans. You know, most of the time it's, they're seen crossing a road. Uh, they have been seen observing little kids. They're very curious about young young kids. They've been seen uh, watching kids play. In fact, one of the sightings, uh, first sightings in the newspaper in Lakeland, 1947, a little boy came running in and he lived on the edge of the green swamp and said, there was a big hairy monster outside watching me, Mom. And she went out and just caught this animal as it was walking back in the woods. Oh, wow. But uh, he, there's no telling how long the animal was watching the little boy. He didn't come out to grab him. Right, right. So I'm saying it doesn't sound aggressive. There are some yeah. stories out there where, you know, supposedly these animals have abducted children, but the children were later found. I mean, not too long ago in North Carolina, that little boy was missing. Mm-hmm. And what does he say? A bear was taking care of him. A bear yeah. was taking care of him? Right. So what's to say this little boy didn't confuse a bear with a Bigfoot? Yeah. Or, again, that's my theory, which right, it is right. shared about. Uh, it is uh, that theory is shared among a lot of the other Bigfoot hunters that that there was a it was a Bigfoot taking care of this little boy versus a, a bear. Let's go back to evidence. You know, mm-hmm. in today's technology, the way people can fake things yes. like a photograph or a video because we're more tech savvy right now yes we are is it is it harder to believe uh certain things i would i would tend to believe some of the older videos Mm -hmm. because you probably wouldn't have that technology but when Um, you look at this stuff can you kind of tell a fake nonetheless until i get out and investigate it Mm -hmm. and i'll tell you there's been some good ones out there yeah uh there was one not too long ago called the lettuce lake bigfoot video taken and when i got a hold of the individual that took it he was really actually he used some really profanity toward me and I was like you know anybody I've met who supposedly seen this thing has no pro you know loves to go out and show people where they saw of course, it, whereas yeah. this person didn't and going out to Lettuce Lake which is located right next to a college and uh and talking to the rangers and they said they've never had anybody seen or hear anything out there you know I mean it's right off of uh 75 so but you know looking at the video it's a pretty impressive looking video but who's to say that some kids in a uh, a photo uh, class decide let's go of mess of course and you tell me so well why do they do it to to fool the experts they just right. got a wild idea let's see if we can't fool the experts yeah but you know you like you said going back to the old stuff the roger patterson bluff creek video mm-hmm. or film technology was not up to, to the, even the suit there's no way they could have built right. a suit like that so i think roger and bob gimlin got lucky and actually came upon a bigfoot i think the fact that they were both on horses disguised their human smell mm-hmm. so the animal didn't detect their smell because i do believe these animals have their their senses are very heightened versus yeah. ours smell sight and hearing but yeah yeah i do have to worry about that people faking me out um as far as hair samples you know, I've been told there's there've been some hair samples found out, and the government mysteriously comes and takes it away from them. So, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like a catch-all to a story. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. I could sit there and tell you, oh, right before this interview, I found a dead Bigfoot, but before I could pick it up, the government take, took it away yeah, from me. Yeah, so, you're right. Yes, darn. Right. You know <laughs> exactly. I mean, um, but yeah, I have to be careful of that. And again. I look at the witness, I go out to the location, see what's out there, mm-hmm. and I look and see, is there, you know, because the animal has to be out there for a reason. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, three reasons. Security, the animal doesn't want to get found. Food, is there anything out there for this animal to eat? Right. And water, has to have, you know, every animal has to use water. And a lot of these, I think, do use the waterways as kind of a, a, a way if they have to move. Because uh, I do believe they're nomadic when they have to be. I mm-hmm. think they'll stay in an area where they feel secure until their security you know, humans come into the area, then it's time to, to move on to another area. Do you go on many skunk ape expeditions? About how many do you go on? Um, you know? Oh, uh, gosh, I, that's, a, that's a good question. I go on them all the time, um, except during the, uh, the extreme summertime, and mm-hmm. only because I those mosquitoes just tear oh, me yeah. up. But uh, once it starts to cool off a little bit, yes, I got my camping gear. In fact, I got it sitting right behind me, right, ready to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I, got I my do. Thermal, I see it. Yeah. The, big, the big pack Yes, back there. I got my, you know, in case I get a phone call, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, that's great. What if someone like me with no experience was interested in going? What should I do? Well, buy my book. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to. Right, remember, that definitely, yes. Let's go back to your book, The Legend um, Tribbing, The Ultimate Adventure, uh, which has a whole guide in the back. It gives mm-hmm. you do's and don'ts yes. and what to bring and yes. what not to bring. So, um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Um, well, like you said, the the book is, a, like you said, it's, it's a guidebook. I made it as detailed as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. I try to think of everything that I could to help you have a successful Bigfoot or ghost hunt or UFO hunt. Going back to the Bigfoot hunt, um, I always tell people, you know, get on the internet, find out your area. Uh, You know, the BRFO, Bigfoot uh, Field Research Organization, has an awesome database. Okay. And they're very good about sharing, you know, Mm -hmm. reports out there. And find one in your location, if you know, find out how old it is. Mm -hmm. If it's like 10 years old, may not have anything out there. Or then again, it it may be out there. Um, Are there any kind of group hunts or no? Like uh, yeah, you people can, go you in know, like you, a group. Uh, the BRFO uh, they do have hunts every now and then, but they 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 don't have them all in Florida. They have them all over. Yeah, the all over. Okay. Whereas you know me, I've always wanted to go out. You know, I don't want to wait till BRFO has a hunt. I wanted to go out on my own. Or, yeah, and know. where do you mostly go around here? Um, well, I have different locations. Uh, as far as my area around here, uh, we have the the Green Swamp, which right. is uh, north of Lakeland. Uh, about 40 minutes from uh, Orlando, west mm-hmm. of Orlando. Big, huge area out there. Of course, you got to be careful. It, 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 you know, a lot of areas are open for hunting. So, And I do wear orange when I do go out there. So we said, well, what if Bigfoot can see orange? I said, believe me, it knew I was out there before. <laughs> yeah, I right. mean, I got a big yellow Jeep. It knew I'm, you know, mm-hmm. these animals know when humans are there. Of course. They haven't survived this long, yes. you know, without not knowing. Somebody always said they are the ultimate survival mm-hmm. survivalist. Uh, you know, uh, Ocala National Forest, another big area. Uh, and of course, the Everglades. And of course, up to, uh, you know, not too far from Tallahassee, you got a big area up in that area that's had numerous Bigfoot sightings and stuff, too. There's definitely, uh, you know, just get on the website, find out where your area is, start making, you know. Uh, and be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared. I always tell people do not go out in the woods by yourself. It's just, right. you know, because. Well, I'm good. I'll just stay on the path. Well, there's people that have gotten bit by snakes that have mm-hmm. stayed on the path. You know, you always need to have somebody with you. You got to let somebody know you're going out there. And if an area says no trespassing, do not trespass. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's reasons why, you know. Yeah. I mean, so I'll never get to find Bigfoot. Believe me, there are other areas out there that are free to go. Um, make sure you take, when you go into the woods, be prepared. 
I say pack like you're going to be staying overnight. Even though you may not use it, which is good, if something does happen, you do happen to get lost, you are prepared to stay there for the night. All right, Rob. Well, thank you, and happy legend tripping. Yeah, thank you for having me I'm on the show. probably going to tag along with you on a All Bigfoot right. hey, hunt. Like I said, you're and always then, welcome to me. And we will bring it to this podcast. <laughs> okay, thanks. That was Rob Robinson talking about eyewitness accounts of Florida's skunk ape sightings. Think you're ready to embark on this ultimate adventure yourself? Then be sure to pick up Rob's guidebook on legend tripping. You can find a link to it on our website at soflowweird.com. Next, we feature the tales of a blood-sucking critter in South Florida, a vicious creature known as El Chupacabra. Is it an urban myth or simply a mystery? This is an excerpt from Charlie Carlson's Strange Florida 2 book. If skunk apes aren't enough, now we have a pesky, red-eyed, spike-headed creature with fangs killing our livestock and pets. Translated as the goat sucker, El Chupacabra seems to have originated in Canavanas, Puerto Rico, where it is believed to be the result of a secret government experiment. Or, depending on the source, some kind of high-bred critter connected to space aliens. I think the U.S. government made this thing by crossing a chicken with a Tasmanian devil. Or maybe the infamous Jersey Devil has retired to South Florida. El Chupacabra has been blamed for sinking its claws into a luxury car in Dade County, and in May 1996 for killing dogs, cats, and chickens, and generally scaring folks in Sweetwater. All total, 60 animals were killed, which was enough to stir up the community. Traps were set out in hopes of nabbing the demonic beast, which is said to emit a nasty sulfuric odor. Okay, that's all we need. Another smelly, unexplained creature. Since skunk apes stink too, I have to ask, do these weird critters ever bathe? Witnesses have described the chupacabra like a beast right out of science fiction. It can change colors on a whim, usually blue or green, and is shaped like a kangaroo with glowing red eyes. It has sharp teeth, webbed wing-like arms, claws, dorsal fins, and spikes on its head. In 2005, a picture appeared on the internet of a bluish-colored chupacabra captured in Texas. It looked to me like the poor chupacabra had the mange. I was almost right, as it turned out to be a coyote with a severe case of sarcoptic mange, which leaves animals emaciated and hairless with bluish-gray skin. When the chupacabra first appeared in Puerto Rico, 200 civil defense volunteers went looking for it. It was true that something had been prowling the countryside, mutilating 200 cows, dogs, chickens, and hogs. The carcasses were shown through autopsies to have strange puncture wounds inconsistent with any common predator of the region. However, in spite of 20 eyewitnesses claiming a close encounter with the weird-looking creature, a biologist suggested it was nothing more than a deformed animal. One woman claimed to have found a chupacabra's nest and submitted specimens of dung, hair, and traces of flesh for examination. I don't know why anyone would want to mess with a nest of a ferocious blood-sucking beast with fangs and claws. Anyway, the specimens collected by the woman were sent for DNA evaluation, but the results were inconclusive. It seems like lab results on weird stuff are always inconclusive. 99% of all chupacabra claims in Florida come from Hispanic communities around Tampa, Miami, and Orlando. This brings up the big question. 
Is the devilish beast mere cultural folklore imported from Puerto Rico? If it is just folk yarn, then what killed all these animals? Unless you have a better explanation, I'll stick with my theory that the Jersey Devil has retired to South Florida. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, and our newest contributor, Kyle Thayer. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.